It's fitting after singing that song that we should turn to God's word again in our service. The song we just sang was a prayer that the Lord would teach us, and now he does, teaches us through his word. And not only that, but the song that we just sang was a setting of a portion of Psalm 119. Well, that's where we're turning now in the scriptures to that particular psalm, Psalm 119. We've been taking some time lately on Sunday mornings to think again about the reality of the power of God. And that power, not just out there upholding the universe, but also at work in our own lives, coming upon us and transforming us and aiding us. So a few weeks back, we turned to Mark chapter 9. Remember what Jesus said. He said, all things are possible for the one who believes. He said that to the man who said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And then last week, it was Philippians 4. It was Paul saying, Paul taking this truth personally, saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That was last week. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And remember, among other things, when Paul says all things, well, that includes learning and possessing and exhibiting real contentment in any and all circumstances. Because remember, that was the theme in that passage. Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So that was last week, Philippians 4, the power of God at work in us, strengthening us so as to bring us to a place of real contentment. From the world's vantage point, we might even say surprising contentment. Because Paul could say, I've learned that in all circumstances, even when I've been brought low. Even when I don't have the abundance that I might want. So that brings us to this week. That that tees us up well for our theme this week. Because this week, it's the power of God at work in us in the midst of those circumstances in which the world says, surely there's no possibility for contentment here. Because this week it's the power of God at work in us, strengthening us, when we have been laid low by sorrow. The power of God at work in us, when we've been laid low by sorrow. I'm going to read for us from Psalm 119 verses 25 through 32, but I'll tell you right now, it's verse 28 that we're going to train our attention on. Verse 28. But let's listen to this whole eight-verse section. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. 
Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, including this psalm, which in so many ways is a celebration of your word, as well as included in it. We pray that you would bless us now as we reflect upon what you have had to say. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This past summer, our family got to go to France. We ate bread, we ate cheese, we drank wine, we saw buildings, we saw art, and then more art, and then more art. Went to a variety of art museums in Paris and then down in the south in in Aix and in Arles. We went to Versailles as well, and there at Versailles, there was a whole gallery of paintings that chronicled French military history. And so we, we took in all of those various paintings the way you usually take in a painting, which is by standing right in front of it, standing in one place and taking it in from that one spot where you're standing and then you move on to the next one. But when Christy and I were in the town of Bayeux, this was four years ago now on a previous trip in the north of France, we got to take in a very different work of art. We got to see the famous Bayeux tapestry. Tapestry that probably dates from the 11th century, and that alone makes it remarkable. It's housed in the town of Bayeux in Normandy in the north. The Bayeux tapestry chronicles the Norman invasion of England in 1066. And that tapestry is over 220 feet long. So that tapestry is most certainly not a work of art that you stand in front of in one place so that you take it in, all of it, standing in one place. No, in the museum where it's located, it has its own separate room. And it wraps all the way around the room. And you've got to walk all the way around the room to take the whole thing in, and it is worth the walk. It's fascinating. It's worth taking your time. It's somewhat awe-inspiring just to be in the presence of it, this ancient work. Not just interesting to see how that invasion is portrayed, but to think I'm looking at something that's that old that chronicles that invasion. Well, Psalm 119 is the Bayeux Tapestry of the Book of Psalms. It's so long that you might say it has its own separate room in the gallery that is the Book of Psalms, and it wraps all the way around the room, and you've got to walk all the way around the room to take the whole thing in. Depending upon how your Bible's formatted, you've probably got to turn the page at least twice to get from verse 1 to verse 176. 
and it's worth the walk because it's rich and powerful and glorious. It's worth taking your time. It's awe-inspiring just to be in the presence of this song, this carefully crafted poem that celebrates the Word of God. And it is, in its own way, a work of art. And we can say that. Without apology, about Psalm 119, it is a work of art. The psalm as a whole is structured in the most remarkable way. You may know this. If you do, then be reminded of it. It's made up of 22 sections, eight verses in each. And the sections proceed alphabetically through the Hebrew alphabet. So all eight verses in the first section begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then all eight verses in the second section begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so forth, all the way to the end, 22 sections. We don't know why it's structured that way. Some have suggested that it was structured that way as an aid to memorization. Maybe. I've wondered myself how much of an aid... That would have been, but that, that could be. Some su- have suggested it was structured alphabetically, A to Z as we would put it, as a kind of poetic statement of completeness, as a way of representing in the structure and the style of the very poem the completeness of God's Word. Maybe. Could be that the poet simply liked the challenge and he saw a certain beauty in it. We don't know, and that's okay. We don't need to know. Whatever the reason was, we have the text itself, and it is a masterpiece. Psalm 119. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. So here's Spurgeon in the 19th century reflecting upon this psalm. He says, it is the longest psalm, but it is not long only. For it equally excels in breadth of thought, depth of meaning, and height of fervor. And then drawing upon Revelation, he says, It is like the celestial city which lieth four square, and the height and breadth of it are equal. Spurgeon says, Many superficial readers have imagined that it harps upon one string and abounds in pious repetitions and redundancies. But this arises from the shallowness of the reader's own mind. Those who have studied this divine hymn and carefully noted each line of it are amazed at the variety and profundity of the thought. Using only a few words, the writer of this psalm has produced permutations and combinations of meaning which display his holy familiarity with his subject and the sanctified ingenuity of his mind. And he goes on from there. Finally, he says, this psalm is loaded with holy sense and it is as weighty as it is bulky. Again and again have we cried out while studying it, oh, the depths. That's Spurgeon testifying to the glory of of this psalm, and his words are worthy words, because this is a remarkable poem that we've been given. The overarching theme of this psalm is the Word of God, but of course there are so many glorious things that you can say about the Word of God and about our relationship to it. And not only that, but there are so many different ways that you can say all of those things. And so there are 176 
verses in this psalm, but it's not like the theme has run out by the end. If the Hebrew alphabet had been longer, the psalm could have been as well. So 22 sections, 8 verses per section. This morning, we've got before us the one section that is verses 25 through 32. The sections in this psalm are not organized thematically. Sometimes you can notice connections between verses that are side by side. There is some of that. But on the whole, this psalm is not like that. So in other words, it's not like you read verses 25 through 32, this particular eight-verse section, and you find that there's one theme that ties it all together and sets this section apart from the others. It's not like that. And so just in these eight verses that I read for us, you've got a number of different things that are said about the Word of God and our relationship to it. There's desperation here. Because he says, my soul clings to the dust. There's determination here because he says, I will meditate on your words. And there's memory here because he looks back and he says, you answered me. And there's petition here because in so many ways he says, Lord, bless me. Bless me by your word. So, yes, we're focusing on verse 28 in the midst of this section. And on the reality of sorrow and the way we might pray to God in the midst of sorrow. But the very fact that we have this one verse about sorrow surrounded by all of these other emotions and resolutions, that tells us something. Tells us that sorrow is itself one aspect of this complex thing that we call the Christian life. Sorrow is not an exception to that life. It's part of it. Because the Christian life is that multifaceted. Sorrow has a place in this section, in a psalm like this. Sorrow has a place in our Christian lives lived in a world like this. Sorrow is part of the tapestry. The long, detailed, multifaceted tapestry that is the Christian life. Of course it is. Because it is a world like this. And because we love God in it. I was thinking that, too, is represented, I suppose, in the Bayou Tapestry as you make your way around all 220 feet. It's the chronicle of an invasion. And so there are scenes of death and weeping. Of course there are, because that's the kind of tapestry that it is. That's the kind of reality that it's chronicling. And so are our own lives. So verse 28, now we get out our magnifying glasses and train our attention on this verse. Two halves to this verse, he says, my soul melts away for sorrow, strengthen me according to your word. My soul melts away for sorrow, strengthen me according to your word. So the first half of the verse is what he's experiencing The second half of the verse is an expression of what he wants in the midst of that experience. So let's reflect upon them in that order. First of all, what's he experiencing here? He says, my soul melts away for sorrow. And that is such a potent 
and, and vivid way of capturing it and describing it. My soul melts away for sorrow. Can souls melt? Apparently they can. The word that we've got translated here as melts, it has the idea of weeping. My soul weeps. So what he's experiencing, what he's going through is some kind of sorrow and he's, he's pouring himself out in the experience and the expression of that sorrow. He's being spent. He's being exhausted. He's being emptied. And like a lot of the Psalms, we're not told here what it was exactly that was causing him this sorrow. It could have been any number of things. We're not given the backstory. Maybe it was one big thing. Maybe it was a number of them. Maybe it was something that was lifelong. Maybe it was something that came out of nowhere all of a sudden. Maybe it was things that were going on around him that were being done to him. Or maybe it was things that were coming forth from him that were being done by him. The reality of his own sin. Maybe it was all of the above. Maybe it was just the burden, the heartbreak of living in a world like this. Whatever it was, in one way or another, he's experiencing some kind of sorrow and he's pouring himself out in the midst of it. He's being spent, exhausted, emptied. And because we're not told here exactly what it was that was causing him this sorrow, it can be easier for us, as we're sitting here this morning, to fill in the blanks from our own lives. In other words, it can be easier for us to enter into this verse and relate to it and apply it as those who are experiencing something like it ourselves. So, Christian, you can take it personally. Whatever is going on in your life today, whatever it is that you brought with you today into this room, or wherever you're seated as you tune in online, maybe it is one big thing, or a number of them. Maybe it is something lifelong that you're dealing with, or something surprising and sudden. Maybe it is things that are going on around you and outside of you that are being done to you or maybe it's things that are coming forth from you the reality of your own sin maybe it's all of the above maybe it's living in a world like this pains that will not quit in a world that's under a curse that for now will not be lifted and not only that again thinking about what you're going through today It's not like it has to be a moment in which you feel completely, thoroughly spent because of sorrow. There are degrees of melting. There's weeping that's more or less intense. There are degrees of being spent and exhausted and emptied. Whatever it is that's going on in your life today, and however intense it is, we can enter into this. We are those who feel. We are those who can talk to God in prayer about what we're feeling and about what it is that's caused it. And in that respect, 
we're not just following the example of the psalmist. We are following the example of Christ in his perfect humanity. Jesus could have prayed this verse. Psalm 119, verse 28. However precisely he put it, he certainly did pray this. This certainly would have been an aspect of the way he related to his Father in heaven and and talked to him. Jesus could have said, Father, my soul melts for sorrow. The prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to the day when Christ would come. And he said this about him even before he came. He said, when the Christ comes, he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's Isaiah 53. He's going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah pointed forward to the day when a Christ like that would come and he came. And so the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5, says this about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That was an aspect of Jesus' own experience. So, for example, when his friend Lazarus died, Jesus went to the tomb. This is John 11. It says this, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. It's John 11. And he wasn't putting on a show. He wept because he felt, he felt deeply. Another example, when he's approaching Jerusalem, near the end, he wept again. This is Luke 19. It says this, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. That's Luke 19. He wept over it because they had not believed in him. He wept over it because they were going to be destroyed. One more example. I read this for us earlier in our service. Luke 22. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died. It says this. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's a man whose soul is weeping. And, and it shows, even physically, even visibly, in those moments. What would have been visible, an expression of what would have been invisible within. His soul weeping because of the prospect of what's in store for him. And his body sweating, as it were, like great drops of blood to the ground. That's a man who's being spent, exhausted, emptied, under the weight of his own grief. Some people think that because Jesus was the sinless Son of God, therefore he didn't feel things quite so deeply. That he must have been above it all. That he must have been impervious. It's just the opposite. Because he was the sinless Son of God, 
Therefore, Jesus felt what he felt more deeply than we can possibly imagine. He was never undone by what he felt. He was never out of control. But it ran deep. It ran deeper than it ever has for you and me. And in fact, if anything, that makes it all the more remarkable that he wasn't undone. That he wasn't out of control. Because what he felt ran as deeply as it did. So Christian, in some moment of your own deep sorrow, you can go to Christ and you can say, Jesus, help me. I'm dying here. And Jesus can say, I know. I understand. I remember. My soul melts for sorrow. Jesus knew what that was like. And he hasn't forgotten. And so did the author of Psalm 119. And so do we. So that's the first half of our verse, what he's experiencing. And that leads to the other then, the the second half of the verse, which is what he prays, what he wants, what he asks God for in the midst of this melting, weeping sorrow. What does he say? He says, my soul melts away for sorrow, and then this, strengthen me according to your word. That's what he wants. That's what he asks. Strengthen me according to your word. So what he asks of the Lord here is not the removal, the taking away of the circumstance, whatever it was that was causing him this sorrow. In this verse, he does not ask that of God. He doesn't ask for that kind of relief. Now, I say... In this verse, he doesn't ask for that. Because it's not like it would have been a bad thing or an unworthy thing for him to ask God for that. No, it would have been perfectly natural and good and right for him to say, Oh Lord, would you please remove this from me that's causing me to melt away like this. It would have been perfectly natural and good and right for him to pray such a prayer as that. Presumably, he did. It's just that that's not what he asks for here in this one verse that we're focusing on. What he asks for here is for God to strengthen him in the midst of his sorrow. I suppose it's a little bit like Solomon. When Solomon becomes king and God says... What would you like to ask me for? And, and there were so many good and reasonable and natural things that Solomon might have asked for. But what's the one thing that he asked for? Give me wisdom. So that I reign well and the Lord hears that prayer. And understands how remarkable it is and honors it. Something like that is going on here. My soul melts. My soul weeps for sorrow. And at least in this moment, this is the one thing I'm going to ask for. Not relief, not the removal of the sorrowful circumstance, but this. I want strength. The kind of strength that only you can give me. The kind of strength that comes according to your word. So that that itself is, is worth noting. Because what it tells us is that there is such a thing. As strength in sorrow. 
That's a very real possibility. Even in this kind of profound, melting, weeping, practically dissolving sorrow. It's possible still to be strong. And the reason that's worth underlining is that we might very well be tempted to think that when we're experiencing some deep sorrow, that, well, surely in a moment like that, in a season like that, surely we get a pass from having to be strong. And maybe you've known that temptation. Surely it would be unreasonable for anybody to expect us to be strong when we're experiencing sorrow that's weighing down on us like that. At that point, don't we have permission to write off the very idea of strength and resign ourselves to nothing but unmitigated weakness? Well, the answer is no. And you can get that from this one verse. Brothers and sisters, believe it or not, and believe it, there is such a thing as strength in sorrow. It is possible to be strong even in the midst of a circumstance that is positively breaking your heart. So there is such a thing as strength in sorrow. But once we've established that, still we've got to keep going. We've got to keep reflecting upon that and say, well, well, okay, what does that look like exactly? What would it entail? What would it involve to have that kind of strength and to show it? Well, we can say a few things that it, it doesn't involve, that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean being unaffected by your pains So that you're numb to what's going on. It doesn't mean having everything figured out about your sorrows. Having all the answers. Having a ready explanation for everything. Those are all distortions. Those are all caricatures of what it would mean to be strength. To be strong in sorrow. They're not the real thing. They're distortions of it. Remember what he's asking for here is strength according to your word. And so we go to the word, not to these distortions, not to these caricatures, not to these misrepresentations. No, we go to the word to get a glimpse of what this strength might be. And not only that, but we go to the word to grow in it, to discover it, so that we actually possess it. So here are some aspects of what it does mean. To be strong in sorrow. And and I can say all of these things that I'm about to say in part because I know people who have displayed them. And I bet you do too. And doesn't that help? As you reflect upon some biblical virtue, especially one that we might find surprising, one that we might find challenging, isn't it a help when you can bring to mind... Dear Christian brothers and sisters, you have known that you still know who have exhibited this. Here's the first I'll mention. Trust. Trust. Strength in sorrow means, among other things, that you keep trusting the promises of God. Including the promise that he's going to hold on to you. And that he's going to use this somehow for your good. 
And if that means having to cry out now and then, like we heard not too long ago, I believe, help my unbelief, well then cry that with trust, with faith, because that's a trusting prayer as well. And that leads us to the second. The first was trust. The second was, is prayer. Strength and sorrow means, among other things, that you keep communing with God in the midst of it. You don't put your relationship with God on hold until the sorrow is relieved. Now, your prayer life will look different. It will sound different when you're deep down in the valley. Of course it will. But you keep communing with God. You keep talking to Him. You keep praying to Him. Like Jesus, who cried out with with supplications and cries, with loud cries and tears. So trust, prayer, and believe it or not, the third one is joy. We can't give up on joy. A joy that runs more deeply than even our deepest sorrows. Strength and sorrow means, among other things, that you rejoice. Not rejoicing in the pains themselves, but rejoicing in the reasons that God has brought them. And the things that He's accomplishing in your life by means of them. Which is building you up in your faith and hope and love, which is making you more like Christ. Rejoicing in the gospel itself. So trust and prayer and joy. Here's a fourth. You won't be surprised. It's love. Strength and sorrow means, among other things, that you don't stop loving other people. Even if it's just little ways. That you, you find a way to express Care, concern, interest in the people around you. You don't become so absorbed in what you're going through that everybody else in your life practically vanishes from view so that you're the only one you're left seeing and caring about. No, even in in little ways, you find a way to love Here's another one. We'll call it steadiness. Strength and sorrow means, among other things, that you press on in the others that we've mentioned. That you press on in trust and prayer and joy and love. You keep going. Doesn't mean that every day is the same as the last. Every day is its own journey. And therefore, your own emotions and responses will be as well. That's natural. But over the long haul, there's a steadiness. There's a perseverance. So so those are some aspects of what it means, perhaps surprisingly, to be strong in the midst of profound sorrow. That you trust and pray and rejoice and love, and that you press on in those ways. Strong in sorrow, according to God's word. And even this, even this part of the prayer, Jesus could have prayed. 
in his true humanity, and it was a true human nature that the divine son took to himself. Jesus related this way to his father. Jesus could say, strengthen me according to your word. Remember what we heard before. Jesus, the night before he died, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his soul was melting for sorrow, what else does Luke tell us? He tells us this. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus of Nazareth, true man, weighed down with grief, needed in that unbelievable moment to be strengthened, and he was. And no doubt it was the word of his father, it was the truth of his father that was essential in some way to his being strengthened in that moment. And then this is beautiful. Just a few verses later, in that very same garden, what happens next? After Jesus has been strengthened, it says this, when he rose from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow in their own way, right there, their melting way too. He finds them sleeping for sorrow, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In other words, he comes upon them sleeping for sorrow, and he who was just strengthened looks at them and speaks a strengthening word to them. He who was just strengthened is now become the strengthener for his needy, sorrowful disciples. And he tells them to pray. Rise and pray. That that was a, a Psalm 119, verse 28 moment in so many ways. And brothers and sisters, this is too... This moment right now, in September of 2022, we're all there in our own ways, in different ways, experiencing sorrow and needing to be strengthened according to God's word. There is such a thing as strength and sorrow, but it doesn't just happen. There's a reason that this is a prayer in our psalm. It, it's something that has to be sought, something that has to be asked for. From from God. It's a prayer and not just an observation that we have the need. And so we can pray this too. Father in heaven, I pray, strengthen me. I need you to strengthen me. If my sinless Savior needed to be strengthened in his sinless humanity, then I do all the more because I'm not sinless like him. Father in heaven, I pray, grant me to know trust and prayer and joy and love and perseverance in them. Ask that of God, and he will. He strengthens. So this one verse, this one verse in the midst of this one section, in the midst of this very long tapestry that is Psalm 119, this one verse is one to take with us. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And we can take this verse with us knowing that Jesus did first. We can be honest with God like this. We can cry out to God like this. So let's take it with us. Whatever you're going through now. Whatever the Lord 
has for you in the week to come. Whatever the Lord has for you down the road, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, that becomes our prayer now. We have come here. You you know us better than we know ourselves. We have all come here this morning with sorrows of our own. Melting, weeping sorrow. Various kinds and degrees and intensities. You know, you know us perfectly. You know us through and through. And we know you well enough to cry out, Father, strengthen us according to your word. It is our desire that you would bring relief, relieve us of our sorrows. And we are not unafraid to ask it. For our Savior taught us to pray for our daily bread. And yet so long as you have these sorrows appointed for us, strengthen us that we might trust in you and pray to you, that we might exhibit joy and love, and that we might press on until the day when these melting sorrows are no more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.